Hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. Of course, continuing the exposition of the Gospel of John, but I've chosen in this case particularly to uh, employ the advantage of the testimony of other eyewitnesses, namely Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and we'll reference them at times, and, and it'd be good for you to follow along in your uh, text of Scripture. Before we start, I would invite you to join with me as we uh, pray again. Lord, I thank you for the songwriters who have given to us such great music to sing with. Thank you for the gifts and talents that you've given to our own musicians to lead us in singing these words that are so profound that we would want to just bask in the truth of them as we glory in who you are and what you've done. And you are worthy of our worship today in that we've drawn together this way. We've heard your word, we've sung, we've prayed. And I pray, Lord, that the preaching of your word would uh, not be different than an act of worship. That as your word is expounded and explained as it's applied, this also would continue in a heart of worship. So cause your book to live, Lord. Cause it to speak to our hearts and transform us by it, we pray. And again, we pray this through the name of our Savior and for his glory, and for our good and joy, we pray these things. Amen. The night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, there followed from that dark night, or into that dark night, two people that were on trial. One is Peter, the disciple of Jesus. And the second is Jesus himself. And last Sunday, we were able to look at Peter's trial, his trial. Some call it a trial by fire. Uh, his was a trial beside a fire. Uh, but you're welcome to glance back at our uh, archives of sermons on our website and if you were able, if you weren't able to listen, but there we looked at the temptation of Peter and his response and made a number of important observation observations. Today we're going to look at the trial of Jesus, or at least the beginning. I'm going to take a few moments to just lay the background so that you understand where we're going. Actually, this morning is the first phase of Jesus' trial. There are two phases to his trials. One is the religious trial, 
and the second phase is the civil trial. And we'll be looking at the religious trial of Jesus today, which is three trials within one trial. And interestingly, the civil trial, which Lord willing we'll look at next Sunday, also has three components. But this morning, we're going to look at the uh, trial of Jesus before religious leaders, and there's actually going to be three trials. Now, let me give you some sense of that before we jump in. We'll, you'll recall that when Jesus was arrested, he was taken before a man named Annas. Annas was the high priest in Israel. Up until the year A.D. 15, in which Rome fired him. So, if your math is right, you'll say, okay, Jesus is being uh, persecuted and sent to the cross about A.D. 30-ish. So, 15 years before this event took place, the chief priest of Israel would, was de deposed by Rome which, of course, the Jews uh, took uh, no pleasure in. Rome had no right in interfering with the, uh, with the religious activities of the, of the Jews. So Annas was still called the high priest, but more on an honorary level. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, who Rome put in place, is also the high priest. So we have two high priests. I say this so you won't be confused. Annas is the older man who was deposed, but the Jews still look at him with honor. And he carries that high priestly title to his grave, much like people in other offices within the lands. Um, um, you were, I'm not familiar with all the governmental uh, protocols, but in the Canadian Armed Forces, if you're commissioned by the Queen, even though you're retired, you still carry that commission, and usually uh, people in the same military environment will refer to you as uh, by your title. Uh, you carry, you never lose that. You're, it's been com you've been commissioned by the Queen, and if you're an officer, you never lose that title. Well, Annas never lost the title of chief priest, he, so he had a, a great influence among the Jews. Now, the trial of Jesus before Annas was more like a what we would call a preliminary trial. It was to see if there was enough evidence to take this to a higher court. Now, en français, this is fait accompli. It's a done deal, and we'll see that in a minute. It was a mockery. The decision had already been made, but in normal jurisprudence in Israel, in Judea, this would have been the preliminary trial. And after the preliminary trial, then Jesus was sent to Caiaphas, the, 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 the ruling high priest. He was the president of a, a 71 member. Uh, court, Supreme Court, not in the sense that we use a Supreme Court in Canada, but in the sense that this was the highest court in the land, and it was made up of 71 members, 
and it's called the Sanhedrin. And he was the president of the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus would be taken to Annas. Then from there, if there was enough evidence, then sent to Caiaphas. And in fact, when Jesus went before Caiaphas, there was two trials. So that's where I get the number three. One, the preliminary, and then two trials before Caiaphas. The third trial is interesting because, you see, by their own rules, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to make a decision at night. So they had to wait till the morning, and this is really significant. I hope you love the irony that's built here. This is why I love studying the Scriptures and just seeing the irony explode. When the cock crew crowed, Crowed would be past tense. Crew would not be in your dictionary. Um, when the cock crowed, it was morning, and then the Sanhedrin convened again and found Jesus guilty. Um, I'll perhaps talk about that more in a moment. So those were the three, uh, three uh, th those were the movements. Annas, uh, one, Caiaphas, two trials. So let's look at the preliminary trial. And to do that, I invite you to turn to John 18, uh, verse number 19. John 18, verse number 19. John 18, verse number 19. And I'm reading to 24. Then the then high priest the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So you'll see in this preliminary inquiry that Annas is questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. That's why I call it a religious trial. In other words, he's on trial. Has, has Jesus departed from the law? Has he, has he has in, in what he said or how he practiced? Was he living as a heretic, in other words? That's what their goal was to find out. So, Annas asked Jesus directly about his teaching. And Jesus then responds in a way that it might surprise you. But he said to Annas, he said, why are you questioning me? Notice in verse 21, he says that. Why do you ask me? Well, what's Jesus getting at? His teaching was public. It was not done in secret. And according to Jewish law, 
every matter must be decided according to Deuteronomy on the basis of two or three witnesses. You don't question the accused person to arrive at a valid answer. You bring in witnesses. So Jesus is not at all being rude. Interestingly, Paul, Paul the Apostle in Acts 23, verses 1 to 5 says, Annas commanded a soldier to slap him. And in Matthew's record, he says that some slapped him and spit on him. Imagine the degradation that Jesus went through in this hearing. He's being dragged in. He's, he's being asked to provide his own evidential defense, which is against the law, and he's being slapped and spit on, ordered by the chief priests. Well, whatever happened, Anna seemed to be satisfied he had enough evidence. And so we send him to Caiaphas. Now we move to religious trial number two, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, we're told, was the same Caiaphas in John chapter 11 that prophesied that one man should die for the nation. Let me, let me take you back there, and I invite you to join me as we go to chapter 11. You remember that chapter 11 is where Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and, and Jesus gains popularity. And I invite you to look at verse 47 of chapter 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should, should perish. This is the same Caiaphas. This is the one that had already convinced the council, you'll see in verse 53, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus is now going to stand before Caiaphas, a man and this council who already decided to put Jesus to death. I say that so it removes any doubt in your mind that any decision that is made here has already been made, and it's made not in favor of Jesus. He's going to a mock trial. Caiaphas is the one who said, let him die instead of the whole nation. You see, after the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus, uh, the, the Jews were in a terrible state. As you already said, it, Rome was, was, was the institution, the organization that was putting the chief priests 
and, and, the, and the ruling council in place. If the whole nation started following Jesus, these guys are out of a job. That's problem number one. Problem number two is if the whole nation starts following Jesus and there's a bit of a, a problem, if there's some uh, uh, unrest in the streets, if there's great celebrations, if it looks like the people don't have, or the leaders don't have the people under control, Rome's going to step in. And when they stepped in, they stepped in with their army. So Caiaphas is saying something rather logical. Why shouldn't this man die, then the rest of us suffer? But this is the Caiaphas that Jesus is now going to face trial with. Now, for a fuller understanding of what happens, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark gives us greater detail on what goes on between Jesus and Caiaphas. Mark chapter 14, verse 55. Mark 14, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy the temple, this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So you see what's happened here. He's now standing before Caiaphas. The Caiaphas and the council are determined to put him to death. They called false witnesses. I mean, Mark even says it. They called false witnesses. And in the account of the false witnesses, the false witnesses contradicted themselves. So Caiaphas says, enough of this. And he stands up himself and he asks the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? You might wonder why Caiaphas used the term the son of blessed. Well, here's the hypocrisy of Caiaphas's piety. You see, the Jews were so scared to profane the name of God, they wouldn't use the name of God. Even in writing, they would 
they would intentionally leave out certain what we would call vowels to make sure that in case they were they used the name in a profane way they'd be guilty of profanity blasphemy against god so here's here's this high priest representing the god, the people to god in theory he has before him the son of god who he is trying on false evidence and false witnesses the trial has already been finished before it started and his hypocrisy is so great that even when he refers to the son of god he doesn't use the name god in case he profanes it and his whole life has been a profanity against god this trial is a profanity against god but anyway jesus goes on and answers his question and says i am he claims to be god he quotes psalm 110:1 and he quotes daniel 7:13 and he says i am the son of man the son of god who is coming again into the world and of course then this second trial just says blasphemy that's all we need to hear now we have him jesus is claiming to be god now let me just move on to the third religious trial as i said to you uh, the council had two problems the one i haven't spoken of yet and the, is this is that since israel was a vassal state of rome israel could not execute anyone so they had this problem they now had jesus found uh guilty of a crime punishable by death but they couldn't execute him they're going to solve that and we'll talk about it next sunday by taking him to pilate who represented the state of rome but the second problem was they had found him guilty in the middle of the night which was against their own procedural rules so matthew records these words and listen as i read them Matthew 27:1 When morning came all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death that's a second that's a third trial I want you to picture this for a moment they already decided that Jesus was guilty and deserving of death and then they had to wait You remember the scene I painted last Sunday, the courtyard? And they're over in one part of the courtyard and they're waiting. And suddenly the rooster crows. And as the rooster crows, they then reconvene the trial and determine Jesus to be guilty. and at the same time as they are doing that the same time they are doing that jesus looks over to the other part of the courtroom or courtyard and sees peter by the fire you can't make up a story like that 
the rooster crows, the council reconvenes to determine you guilty of death. Jesus looks over at Peter and he wepts bitterly. The question that I have as I seek to apply this this morning It's the question that every person who reads and studies, teaches the Bible, preaches, has to have. Is what is the application for us? How do you and I apply what is obviously a deceptive mockery of justice? It's a dishonest deliberation. It's a trial of trickery. How do we apply this? It's an important question to ask. Because in our day in North America, particularly among what I would call liberal churches, the way they would apply this is they would take up a social justice issue and start working towards refining the systems of the courts. How would you apply it? Well, I've always tried to throw in little tidbits of uh, study techniques that are important. And the way we're not to apply it is just say, well, I wonder what this has to do with me. The application has to come from the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Many times throughout the Scripture, we get the application right in the text of Scripture. In this case, we don't, but many times we do. So my advice to you, and I have the joy of being a pastor of a mature congregation who loves to study God's Word, and so I always want to help you in this way, is that if, if the text itself doesn't say, and therefore you go and do such and such, then you need to hear from God as to how to apply this. And it's wrong to make it up in your own mind. And the next step I would go is I would ask the question of the text, has any of Christ's apostles ever referred to this story? Do you see what I'm doing? Do you understand how the New Testament is laid out? We have the historical Gospels, the teaching of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the book of Acts teaches us how the early church applied that teaching. And the rest of the New Testament, the letters of the apostles, either correct or instruct or amplify that. And so if I'm reading something in the Gospels and I don't know how to apply this, my immediate knee-jerk reaction needs to be, well, I wonder if one of the apostles ever applied this. <laughs> Wouldn't that make sense to get an inspired commentary? And the good news about this text is that someone actually did apply this. The very person that was standing warming his hands at that fire that night in his letters applied this story so that we have an application. 
So with that in mind, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Now, many in our church have studied 1 Peter, and I know of a group I think is studying 1 Peter right now, but I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, and this is the application to the story of this mock trial that Jesus went through. If you notice, verse 13, and if you have a modern English Bible, you will have a heading that says something like submission to authority. So let me be very clear. Peter is writing about our response to civil authorities, and he's going to use the trial and the persecution of Christ as an example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject. Be in submission. In other words, obey for the Lord's sake every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors and so on. You've looked at this before. I'm not going to go on. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Actually, Peter's going to use two circumstances. He's, he's going to use the circumstance of people living under a government that is unfair and unjust, and he's going to teach us how to respond. And then he takes a situation of a Christian employee working for a boss who is unfair and unjust, and he's going to teach us how to respond. And in both cases, you're living in a country where the government is unfair and unjust. You're working for an employer who is unfair and unjust. And in both cases, Peter's going to say, notice verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter's inspired, holy comment on an individual who is living under an unjust governmental regime or working for an unjust boss and is doing it in a way that honors God, Peter's comment is, that's a gracious thing. Now, that's not a word I've ever heard, ever, by anybody, including me. It's a gracious thing that I get to work for somebody who is unfair. It's a gracious thing that I get to, to live in under a government that is unfair. I don't hear anybody talking like that. Only Peter. He says, it's a gracious thing. When you keep your mind on God, that is, if your mindset is on God, it becomes a gracious thing to, to live in a country where the government is unfair 
when you keep your mind on God. It is a gracious thing to work for a boss who is unfair to you if you keep your mind on God. It's a gracious thing while you're enduring sorrows, while suffering unjustly. Why would you say that, Peter? Why would you use such counterintuitive language? Why would you say it is a gracious thing to be in a country that is governed unfairly, unjustly, deceptively, immorally? Why would you say that, Peter? Why would you say that it's a gracious thing to go to work every day and endure the suffering of an unfair, unkind, rude boss? Why would you say that? Oh, well, notice what he says in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, here's where Peter's reaching back to that courtyard. Peter's writing this to scattered Christians around Asia Minor. Now he's reaching all the way back to that experience he had in the courtyard. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says when Jesus was under the unjust authority of someone, he didn't respond unkindly and revile and mistreat the person. He just kept trusting himself to the one who is just. He just kept trusting the one who is just. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I I don't have the time to expound on this as I would love to do. As I said, many of you in my church are, are studying this. But I'd like to quote Dr. Thomas Schreiner, who has an excellent commentary on this. He kind of sums this up in one sentence that is, so brief and succinct, but it's a bombshell. Let me read it for you, and I quote, Just as Christ's suffering led to the salvation of others, so too the unjust suffering of believers. That's you and me, right? So the unjust suffering of believers will draw some to faith in Christ. We can never suffer as Christ suffered. He suffered as a perfect lamb. He suffered in a way that he bore the entire wrath of God on him. But we can suffer as he suffered by not speaking deceitfully of those in authority, not reviling them, not mocking them, 
not speaking with contempt towards them, not threatening them, but consistently entrusting ourselves to the one who is just, our Heavenly Father. I couldn't run from this application. I wanted to. I was hoping that the Lord would lead me some other place because you and I cannot miss the application based on the context we're living in today. If you miss it, you're not listening. I would rather end this on a different note because this is going to be controversial. This is, people are going to contest this. The application cannot be avoided. Jesus Christ faced inequity. Amen? Jesus Christ faced unfairness. Jesus Christ faced hidden and wicked motives. Jesus Christ faced the manipulation of truth. Jesus Christ faced skewed and faulty evidence. Jesus Christ faced the pretext of the greatest piety and prudence. Why did he do that? So that he might save us. It's a simple thing. He faced that so he could save us. Beloved, could it be that God is calling the church to endure today suffering under the hands of what many people say is immoral government? Many people are suspect of the government's motives. Many people see the government as a manipulative regime. Could it be that God is calling the church to submit and honor a government that is clearly unjust so that there could be men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Christ based on how we respond, not reviling, not unkindly. I'll be closing with this verse this morning, but Later in chapter 3, as Peter continues this theme, he says for us to honor Christ as Lord in our hearts and be prepared to make a defense to someone because of the hope that is within us. And as I was meditating on and reflecting on that and putting all of Peter's instruction together, I'm going in my mind, this is what I'm thinking, I'm thinking, could it be that when the church of the living God shows honor and respect and submission even to an unjust civil authority, and, and there might be people that might come up to you and I and say, how can you live so calmly under this? How can you live so quietly and peacefully under this? Why do you feel, why I look at you and I, I, sense, a, I sense a contentment? I sense that everything is okay. What, what hope do you have? 
Why aren't you getting upset? And could it be that that's our opportunity to say, because our hope is in the living God, not in an unjust government or even a just government? Could it be that God is calling the church in this day, May 2021, to suffer unjustly so that somebody might see and hear the gospel through your life and my life and be saved? Could it be? Could it be? Think about it this week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you were mocked. You were spit on. You were slapped. You faced a mock trial. The decision had already been made before you were pronounced guilty. You were faced with evidence that was really suspect and unfair. And Peter, who watched you from the courtyard, eventually said, even as you suffered, we too are to walk in your footsteps. I pray, Father, for us at Elk Point Baptist Church that our lives would express the quiet, calm, peaceful attitude that Christ had when he was faced with unjust authorities. May your Holy Spirit fall upon this congregation in such a way that unbelievers will be amazed. They'll be amazed They'll wonder, why aren't you yelling and screaming at the government? Why aren't you throwing things at the government? They'll be amazed. Maybe this week someone will come up to a believer in this church and say, tell me about your hope. Tell me why you're so confident, why you're so at rest. Tell me why you have peace. Tell me why you have no anxiety about this. We don't pretend to know your will in these great things. But Heavenly Father, I honestly lay before your church that today might be the day that we're called to suffer unjustly.
And may we rise up and put our trust in the one who is just. There's none other than you, Father. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, please hear the word of God as our benediction from 1 Peter 3, 14 to 17. But even if you should suffer for unrighteousness, for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, not be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. God bless you on this Lord's Day, and may God bless you richly today and through the week.